minutes after 6 a.m. Good morning, everybody. My name is Nachum Siegel. Welcome to a Friday, Erev Shabbos and Rosh Chodesh. This is your Jewish Moments in the Morning radio program. Shalom Aleichem, Malachem, Hasharet, Malachem, Shabbat Kermikol Melachto Bemitzvah 
Yeah. Mr. Silverberg, your son is on the phone. My son is on the phone. <laughs> Hello, Papa. Hello, Papa. How are you, Papa? How are you, Papa? Papa, I made a fantastic sale today. Papa, I made a fantastic sale today. Silverberg and Sons dresses will be bigger than ever. Silverberg and Sons dresses will be bigger than ever. Papa, write down the order. Papa, write down the order. Are you ready? Are you ready? Style, 1102, red, 2,000 dozen. Style, 1102, red, 2,000 dozen. Style, 88, green, 3,500 dozen. Style, 486, yellow stripe, 900 dozen. Style, 486, yellow stripe, 900 dozen. That's it! That's it. Now hold on a minute while I get a pencil. J.M. and the A.M., the month of Adar on this Friday morning. It's the 20th of February, the 1st of Adar, Rosh Chodesh morning at J.M. and the A.M. Erev Shabbos, Parshas Truma, candle lighting at 516 later on. 516 is your official candle lighting time um, on this Erev Shabbos. 516. Four degrees. Cold enough for you? <laughs> I'm yelling like I want you to have four degrees. Or like I or like I think you want four degrees. Uh it's crazy out there. Four degrees is the official temperature. The wind chill at minus thirteen. Minus thirteen is the wind chill. What do you think of that? Um forty eight percent humidity, winds are west at twelve miles per hour. The gusts up to 21. Sunshine today with a high temperature of 21 degrees. Clear skies tonight with a low of 9. It's going to be a cold walk back from Shul tonight. And uh, what else we have? Afternoon snow for Shabbos with a high temperature of 35. We're getting up to 35 tomorrow. All right. Now we're talking. Uh, right now, Yerushalayim at 41 with rain. Many of you may have seen the photos from overnight. Uh, where Jerusalem was blanketed with snow. I saw a couple of great pictures yesterday from the 2015 snowstorm in Jerusalem. It was really cool. Uh, they've got 41 in rain. We've got 4 degrees here in Jersey City as we say good morning at JM in the AM. want to wish a mazel tov to the Ambrose and Mendelsberg families. An amazing and incredible celebration last night as Ilana Ambrose and Yosef Mendelsberg were married. Mazal tov to the Ambrose family on the Lower East Side, the Mendelsberg family in Chicago, Illinois. Really just a beautiful and incredible celebration. We say Mazal tov from all of us here at JM in the AM. Just wonderful. Great to celebrate even when there's five degrees outside, whatever it was. I think it was all, I think it was 11 when the wedding started and nine when it ended. <laughs> it's unbelievable this winter. Benny Friedman had Bum Bum, Ellie Marcus with Avarachamin. That's brand new. Simcha Liner during this Mishinichnas Adar Marbim Bisimcha with a song called Simcha. 
Chazan Yanki Lemmer with Yismach Moshe. You heard Proked by Shlomo Katz. Menucha and Vizimcha done by Yosef Karduner. Shalom Aleichem. Lenny Solomon from a Shabbat in Liverpool. And Regesh Modani opening things up. Coming up from Jerusalem, Malcolm Honline and the weekly update one hour from now. Malcolm Honline, Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. He'll have the weekly update one hour from now here at JM in the AM. Looking forward to it. Rabbi Yudin, of course, is coming up. Uh, special guests will be visiting our studio and plenty more happening through the morning. Make sure to keep it right here. It may be cold on a Friday, but we'll keep it as warm as we can right here at JM in the AM. Boy, no, she
yikra levein imbar Ve'in tzachem kemo vavar Ve'im shimchem bilao yushpat Shiru v'nuchu v'yom shabbat Yerush nabi
Mrs. Esther Feldman. Coming, Your Highness. What can this court do for you, Mrs. Feldman? I'll tell you what this court can do for me. Could give me a divorce for my Jaime. A divorce? How old are you, Mrs. Feldman? I should live and be well, uh, but ten days after next Hanukkah, I'll be 84. Ken horror, Mrs. Feldman. Tell me, how long have you been married? Fifty-eight years. Fifty-eight years and you want a divorce? Why? Why? Enough is enough. J.M. in the A.M. Friday morning, Rosh Chodesh Adar. Believe it or not, uh, less than two weeks from now, we'll be celebrating the holiday of Purim. Oh, boy, that is hard to believe. J.M. in the A.M. with four degrees, minus 13. The wind chill sunny and a high temperature of 21. Malcolm Holmline will join us coming up. Jay Booksbaum is scheduled to join us with a special guest in the 7 o'clock hour. Uh, plenty happening between now and 9, and then at 9 a.m., Naomi Nachman with the latest edition of Table for Two. She always puts together an amazing show. Her guests this week include Yosef Silver from kosherwine.com, Jonathan Margolin from uh, tokeandscalpel.com, who's a doctor and a chef, and Melinda Strauss from kitchen dash 
Tested.com, sharing with uh, everybody her exciting hummantash and recipes. So plenty happening with Naomi uh, at 9 a.m. this morning on Table for Two. 10 o'clock, Kedem presents our Erev Shabbos music mix all the way until candle lighting, which is going to be amazing. It's always amazing, but I can imagine this first Shabbos of Adar, it's going to be even more amazing. And, of course, great programming all through the weekend. The... Um, the schedule tomorrow night is changing a bit. We are now going to be presenting Saturday Night Seagull at 9 p.m. Eastern Time on the stream on Saturday evening. And um, following that, at 10 o'clock, internationally renowned speaker Rabbi Y.Y. Jacobson joins us as host of Eternal Flame a one-hour-long inspirational show certain to help you ebb out of Shabbos and into the work week. And at 11 p.m., David Lichtenstein will host headlines focused on halachic debates of modern-day issues. He's author of many svarim, as well as the one entitled Headlines, recently released by OU Press. His show will be on 11 o'clock on a Saturday night, and then Monday mornings encored at 11 a.m. So check it all out. And... Um, we will have that brand new Saturday night schedule beginning tomorrow night. We welcome all the great brand new programming at the Malcolm Siegel Network. On um, Sunday, Matis hosts JM Sunday beginning at 7 a.m. I want to thank him for the amazing job he did last week, not only with announcing uh, Ellie and uh, Ariel's engagement, which was a great celebration, but also concentrating on what had happened in Denmark. Uh, JM Sunday live with Matis every Sunday between 7 and 9. And then uh, don't forget that starting at 7 p.m. every Sunday night, Court Report with Elliot Weiselberg, and this is the season to tune in. The hockey and basketball playoffs getting into full swing, lots of action. He'll have it all starting at 7 p.m. Eastern time this coming Sunday night. So stay with us all weekend long at NachumSiegel.com and the NachumSiegel Network. Here's Sheves Chaveirim.
J.M. in the A.M. with Sheves Chaverim. Rosh Chodesh morning at J.M. <laughs> Excuse me. Rosh Chodesh morning at J.M. in the A.M. Four degrees, the wind chill at minus 13. And you wonder why I sound like this, huh? Mazel Tov going out to the Ambrose and Mendelsberg families. Ilana and Yosef are married as of last night. Mazel Tov from all of us here at J.M. in the A.M. And to everybody in the Lower East Side in Chicago, Illinois, who are celebrating today. Candle lighting 516 on this Arab Shabbos Parshas Truma. America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program. Heard on listeners sponsored WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope. Rockland County at 91.9 on the FM dial. Around the world on the web, jmnam.org. Ooh, broadcasting live from the Sonia and Robert Gold Studios here in Jersey City, New Jersey. Are we having trouble with our uh, newscast? Holy cow. This would not be good. We want the news from Israel to get on, of course. Oh, there we go. We do have the news from Israel. Malcolm Holmline scheduled to join us from Israel this morning at JM in the AM, 740 in the morning for the weekly update. Stay tuned. Listen in on the NSN app. A very easy way to listen in to our weekly update. Galitzal, Israel Army Radio, 2 p.m. newscast for a Friday. Rosh Chodesh is next. Boketo from Janet. Galitzal, Ashashtain, Kan Shibel Karmi Mansur, Imashakorechshav. Mezagavira Hopish, Achachmeat Bashota Haronot, Uchvishat Safon, Vamirkaz, Niftehulitnua, Katavenuel Dargilran. The Honishazok, Matkola Kvishim, Shenichsemu Mukdamiotel Niftehulitnua, Vem Gam Kvish Mispar. אחת מוקדם יותר בגוש עציון נותקו כאלף משפחות מהחשמל כתוצאה מנזק שנגרם לאחד מקווי המתח. כתבנו אינבל תמיר. עובדי חברת החשמל פועלים כעת על מנת להשיב את הספקת החשמל הסדירה ליישובי גוש עציון, בתקוע ובנוקדים חודשה הספקה. בערד שבה בשעה האחרונה הספקת החשמל למרבית הבתים, צוותים של חברת החשמל פועלים על מנת לסיים את הטיפול בקו המתח שנפגע באזור. שלג ירד בשעות הבוקר בצפון, בערי המרכז ובכמה ערים בדרום. בירושלים הכריזה העירייה על פתיחת תחרות בובות השלג המסורתית בגן סאקר. כתבנו רום ליאור שמע שם את התושבים הנרגשים מהשלג. אם יש שקט אז אתה יודע שיש שלג בחוץ, אחרת אין לך מה לצאת מהבית. הילדים מאוד נהנים, בונים בובות, יגלוי. מלחמת שלג, עושים חיים, בקיצור. הכל פה לבן, אנשים מחליקים עם מזחלות, עם ניילונים. ראינו מישהו מחליק פה על מגש של מקרר, כאילו פסיכי, אנשים הביאו מזרון ים כפול. סדרת פיצוצים קטלניים בלוב, כתבנו ג'קי חוגי. 25 בני אדם לפחות נהרגו ועוד עשרות נפצעו בפיצוץ שלוש מכוניות תופת בו זמנית בעיר אל-קאבה במזרח לוב. היעדים שהותקפו הם מטה מנגנון הביטחון בעיר, מתקן ממשלתי להפצת דלק וביתו של יושב ראש הפרלמנט. החשד נופל על ארגון דאעש שפעל כנקמה על שיתוף הפעולה של לוב עם פעולת התגמול המצרי. 
אירלנד תערוך משאל עם על חוקיות נישואים חד-מיניים, כתבנו עומר קדרון. תושבי אירלנד יידרשו להכריע אם לאפשר נישואים חד-מיניים בארצם במשאל עם שייערך ב-22 במאי השנה. בזמן שרוב חברי הפרלמנט האירים תומכים באישור החוק, הכנסייה הקתולית באירלנד מתנגדת לכך נחרצות. בחודש שעבר שר הבריאות האירי יצא מהארון וחשף כי הוא הומוסקסואל, ובכך הפך לחבר הממשלה הראשון בתולדות אירלנד השייך לקהילת הלהט"ב. תחזית מזג האוויר המלאה לסוף השבוע עם חזאי גל"צ, אורי הלה. עד שעות הצהריים שלג ירד מהצפון ועד הנגב באזורים הגבוהים מ-300 מטרים. בהמשך יגביה קו הגובה בו צפוי השלג, כך שהוא ירד במקומות הגבוהים כולל הר הנגב. גשם יוסיף לרדת והוא ילווה בסופות רעמים יחידות. קיים חשש ממשי לשיטפונות ולהצפות במזרח הארץ ובדרומה. אלה החדשות שעורכת טל יחזקאלי, בצוות בת רווה ושגיא גבאי.
With words from Hallel, you know why? Because today is Rosh Chodesh Adar. We say Hallel today. How do you like that? Ma'ashiv from Yehuda Green. Mordechai ben David and Od Yeshu open up the uh, 7 o'clock hour. I'd go to more comedy segments for Adar, but we have Jay Booksbaum here. No need to do that. It's Erev Shabbos Parsha's Truma with candlelighting at 516. He is recognized as the world's most well-known, most famous, most efficient most popular kosher wine connoisseur. His name, ladies and gentlemen, is in fact Jay Booksbaum. Good morning, sir, and a good chodesh to you. I get chodesh to dear. I was in the old neighborhood last night. You're in the hood, huh? Yeah, I was in your old Bedford Avenue neighborhood. Well, you didn't live on Bedford. You lived. I on, did so. You lived on Bedford itself? Bedford and Wilson. But, but the address was on Bedford? No. It was on it was Wilson. A corner, right? It was a corner building, 121 Wilson. Right. And I was there because uh, one of your close friends, one of the families you love, the Ambrose family, celebrated Ilana's wedding to Yosef Mendelsberg of Chicago, Illinois. Is that why he wasn't by my uh, L'chaim list? Now? Yes. I want to know why I wasn't by the L'chaim. That's another issue. <laughs> you were at the wedding. That's right. So anyway, mazel tov to the Ambroses. And as you've always said, you believe the father of the Kala, Gary Ambrose, is one of the world's best casual wine connoisseurs. Absolutely. Simple as that. He had some good wines on the tables last night. You know, you go to most of these Jewish weddings, you know what kind of wine you find at the table these days. <laughs> but he, he had a major upgrade. He had some nice wines he was serving. Anyway, Jay, um, we have a big announcement to make. The Booksbaum family is celebrating today. You bet. Those of you who think that celebrations cannot take place in three-degree weather, you've proven otherwise. What's going on? Yossi Booksbaum. Yes. Last night. Yes. Got engaged to Tova Galertner. Mazel tov. 
And we had the Lechaim last night, the Galantner family, Miriam and Chaim. Are they from the old neighborhood in the Bedford no, they're, Avenue? they're from Flatbush. From Flatbush, Brooklyn. Yeah. There's a Jewish community in Flatbush? Uh, How do you like small. that? Very nice. Small but fledgling, you know. <laughs> Avenue P. It's no Elizabeth. <laughs> it's no Elizabeth, that's for sure. They did a beautiful job. Wow, they're, they're fantastic people. So there you go. Eight Kindlech and... Uh, any clue what month the wedding will be in yet? Has June. That, it'll be in June. Better yes. right God willing. How do you like that? So you'll you'll walk Lee, into you'll walk into the summer with a new daughter-in-law. Yeah, I, I already like feel that? like I got one. Huh? She's so wonderful. She's absolutely... Jay, your positive attitude Oof. befits Rosh Chodesh Adar. I hope somebody calls them and tells them that I, you know, I said it here first. Yeah, well, they're probably listening. Cause I you hope know, so. Because you know, most people in their generation are tuned into the radio every single morning. So yeah. So as I soon as the secretaries listen. get to the office at Kedem. Put it, making calls? You know, put it out there. You know, <laughs> tell everybody that Mazel Tov to Jay. So there you go. They'll remember that it was Rosh Chodesh Adar that they got And again. you know what his name is? What is his name? Yosef Ben Yaakov. Yeah. Because that's my name, right? So it's Yosef, my son, Yaakov. Right. Yaakov's your name. Right. So you know what we call him? What do you call him? Yosef Hatzadik. And he really is. He's, he's because the original Yosef Atzadik's father was also Yaakov. Exactly. Is there a comparison with you and Yaakov Avinu? <laughs> I don't know. It's nothing we can I, cite. Halavai, there should be like even a scintilla. Nothing a, we could find. Huh? I don't think so. Were you by uh, Leo on West Englewood Avenue yesterday? Just... I wasn't because I was at the L'chaim, but there was somebody that was. Yeah, who was that? Very good friend of mine. And that would be? And a magnificent winemaker. Yeah. Amichai Luria. And Amichai is from Malilavona in Israel. That's what I found out this morning. Amichai Boker Tov to you. Boker Tov, good morning. Amichai was lamenting to me that it's like minus 17 wind chill outside. <laughs> no. Come on. It's minus 17 centigrade. Oh, that's what it is? Wind chill? Yeah. It's like minus, I don't even know why. Who knows? All I know is, <clears throat> all I know is it's, it's, it's difficult weather out there. What is minus 20? Oh, who knows? Jay Fahrenheit. It's are we, colder than my freezer. Jay, are we starting to do calculations <laughs> no. live on the air between no. centigrade and Fahrenheit? Is that no. what we're starting to do? Is that the new routine that we're drifting into here? Bum, bum, ba -dum, bum, bum. Amichai makes a wine that we call Shiloh. Right. It's made in an area called Mishkan Shiloh. Near Mishkan Shiloh. Oh, near Mishkan Shiloh. Near and, one of the, and one of the things Amichai alluded to as I was riding with him up in the elevator, because as you know, our front door is busted. Please don't tell anybody. Okay. Uh, as I was riding up, and therefore Especially I had to... not the listeners. Right. Therefore I had to go down and actually open the door. Our entry system, I should say, is busted. Maybe this will bring people the uh, the impetus to actually fix this over the weekend. But anyway, uh, Amichai hints to me, he alludes to me, that this is not grape-growing season. These these are not grape growing conditions. Rather, you would not be able to good you would not be able to get a good crop of grapes in three degree Fahrenheit weather. I mean, am I accurate about this? Minus seventeen. It would be hard. Nothing can grow. What is the coldest temperature where you start to? What is the temperature where you start as a vintner to get nervous? Where you say to yourself, "Oh, I hope tonight it doesn't actually drop." To this number that they're predicting, what, what is the what's the demarcation where you where you and other vintners in Israel start to panic when it comes to the weather? Uh, it never gets to anything that we have to panic. Your weather weather's perfect well, that's in Israel during, during all the, the time. Growing season, right? I'm yeah. saying there's always a good cushion. Yeah. There's never a, a frost in the middle of an 80 degree summer. It never happens. 
<laughs> we have never problems in the vineyards. You've never had no. that problem. Well, I, I will tell you from you know yeah. from an educational point of view. Because here in the U.S. we've had this problem. Right. Where for a week when it's supposed to be right. 70 degrees. Well, we had it you know in Florida with the yeah, oranges. Florida and California. California. Yeah. yeah. But I will tell you from a, a educational point of view, a lot of vintners. I don't know if you know if you feel the same way or if you're aware of this, but a lot of vintners like it when during the winter when the off season is and it yeah. gets very cold because then the vineyards completely shut down and there is legend <laughs> if you will that when they come back they come back stronger more vigorous and more wonderful than ever i love it that's great okay so there you go pray for a strong winter and a really good summer that's how it works in the wine industry jay Booksbaum is here amichai's last name is luria luria amichai luria is here as well from the shiloh winery in israel what does it mean the highest rated kosher wine ever what does that mean you want to tell them about it? Highest rated by who? Wine Enthusiast. Is Wine Enthusiast a reputable outfit? Jay? Wine Enthusiast is the is the, the largest or the second largest wine magazine in the world. Do they know their kosher wine? Obviously. I don't want no magazine that, you know, has no clue what it's like no, to have a good guys, kosher these wine. These guys do what they call double blind tastings. Yeah. They don't know what they're tasting when they're tasting except for the fact that the category in general. No makes, idea if it's kosher. No idea if it's kosher. Because, you know, for some people that might lend, you know, a, a bias one way or the other. And what's you know interesting that. about it is that this 93 that it got yeah. is against wines that are double the price, sometimes right. triple the price. Well, how much How uh, much is that bottle cost that's uh, sitting right in front of you, Jay? About 35 35 here. Yeah, yeah. And what is that called? It's called a what? It's called Legend. Legend. Shiloh Legend? That's it. That's how it's known? Yeah. And how did it become legendary? What's in it that it, that made it such a legendary wine? A special blend. Yeah. Unique. Um, Petit Syrah, Petit Verdot, and Shiraz makes it to be a very interesting wine. Huh? Is this unique to this winery? Are there blends that are similar to this, or this is really? I don't know of any of other winery doing that blend. This is it. If you want that blend in kosher wine, What's you go it? with the Legend. How long has it been available outside of Israel? Uh, we started making in 2009, right. and obviously the good wines you never make enough of. And it was sold out very quickly. Really? That also, whole vintage? Yeah. God. In a couple of months. And then 2010 came out, and also there wasn't enough. It also was sold very quickly. And uh, we learned our lesson. So from 2011, we already have much more of it. And it's going really great. Well, if someone shops for it today, which year are they getting? Which uh, vintage are they getting? Uh, 2011. They're getting the 11. Yeah. And there's plenty... There's some stores that still have... 2010. All right. Which was better between me and you? The 10 or the 11? Mm. Come on. I'm I think the 11 the is 11 better. The 11 is better. Yeah. A little Jay, bit you better. agree with that? If you had a case of 10 or a case of 11 to give to your friend Nahum Siegel, which one would you rather give him? 10. You'd rather give him the 10. So it's an argument between you and Amichai. No, I better. think the 11 is better, but it's not better yet. Oh, very interesting. Very deep. Very philosophical. Very heavy. I like that. But I found out here <laughs> yeah. that a lot of stores sell their wines. People buy, well, why store owners they? are buying a lot of wine, yeah. they're selling it, they wait a couple of years, and then they a start selling A couple of years? Yeah. I've seen yeah, wines that they're like selling our Cabernet Secret Reserve, they're selling now 2012, but they have on the side, you can buy also the 2007, 2009, 2010. For a lot more money, obviously. A lot more. I would guess. But also, for them, isn't it a better strategy to yeah. load well, up I mean, on wine? And if you have the space, right? Yeah, if you have the space and the and money. And the revenue, right. Yeah. Interesting. Jay Booksbaum, Amichai Luria in our studio. We're talking about Shiloh Wine. Uh, Amichai is from Malel Levona in Israel. 
and is visiting us this morning. He is planning on voting in the election next month or not? Will you be casting a ballot or not? Probably. Probably, he says. Very interesting, Jay. A little hesitation on Avichai's part. You no, he's that? afraid He's afraid you're going to ask him who he's voting no, that for. I'm not doing what are you kidding? I just wanted to make of. sure there's at least one vote from Al Elamanan, that's all. You can ask, just I don't know yet. <laughs> I don't think anybody in Israel knows what they're going to be doing, frankly. Um, the... Um, by the way, I did notice, and people should pay attention to this, and I know we're going to have a chance to talk about this more as we get closer to Purim, but just in general, there are more and more kosher wines making miniature bottles for the upcoming holiday. Did you notice that? I did notice There that. are announcements now I've seen in newspapers and in other areas where they're paying careful we're attention. Gonna do this, we're going to do our whole I understand, be careful thing. But, but I just want people to realize okay. that there's even more and more available, because I would assume it's a major undertaking oh, yeah. to go and make a different size of wine, right? Yeah. So... Just yeah. thought I'd point that out. I just right. urge people to buy the big one, that's all. Yeah, but if I'm pulling you want to drink more, why make smaller bottles? Yeah. Exactly. So, okay, we'll talk about this before poor exactly. Jay. So, I, so it fr- I love this. It frustrates Jay that the smaller models are available, yeah, but nonetheless, I mean, he's out there who promoting are you kidding? Them. Who are you kidding? Anyway. We're selling magnums instead. Yeah. We're selling double-sized bottles. Yeah, for those of you who don't know, those are the massive, gigantic bottles that, right. you know... You can't dream of taking on an airplane. Not that you can take any size bottle on an airplane. All right, Amichai, um, I have been to some of the wineries in Israel, and I've had the opportunity to you know, see what each and every one of them that I've been to has to offer. What is it about the Shiloh grape, the Shiloh vineyard, the Shiloh taste, the Shiloh method that makes this different, and what will people taste and enjoy when they have your wine? Well, I think we try to do things... A little bit special. Uh, one of the things that we do is that we have uh, unique blends. We have two wines that are called Legend that are unique. Right. Blends that nobody else does. And it, I see that uh, it's working very well. We try to be very consistent. And we also make a very, very good Mivushal wine. Which is very rare, right? In Israel, people tend to not it's drift very toward the Mivushal category. Right? And in order to export, he has to make Mivushal, right, Jay? Is that the rule? Yeah. Is that the rule? These guys, no, no. Not has to, no. but if you're going to oh, get, if if you get, get be in restaurants this, and If you're going to get into this market, you've got to start with a Mivushal wine, right? Uh, you don't have to start with it. There's many wines, uh, really? Castel and Flam and many others that make zero Mivushal wines. Interesting. And people only bring them home. But if you want to get into the wide... Variety, like like Gary did last night. What right. you told me? That's true. What what wine did Gary have on the tables uh, last night? I, now I don't Shiloh, remember. Shilo Reserve Cabernet. Right. So there you go. All right. So how, what's this? What's the key? When I travel to Israel, everyone always says you can't make a good Mavushal wine. Why is it that you can? That's a big problem. I He's can't talk about you. it. <laughs> you mean it's one of these secrets? A deep, dark wine secret that can't be revealed publicly? I think it's the only thing that I keep a secret. Everything else, I'll. Show and tell and explain how I do it, but that's the only thing that we keep a secret. Jay, you let's know, get, I have to let's tell get, you. I have to tell you a quick, get, quick story get, about that. Go ahead. <laughs> Zip it. I was going to conjecture <laughs> with you on the air what ingredient he's tossing in, but all no, right. no. So you know, I went there a couple of years ago and yeah. I brought a guy who promotes all of our Israeli wines with me to teach him a little bit about the wineries. And I, he took pictures of all the wineries and inside the wineries and the tanks. And that. We get to Amichai's winery and he's taking pictures all over, no problem. And then he says, oh, you make this great Mavoshal wine. I want to take a picture of the machine. <laughs> and Amichai's, no, no. The only people who know how the process works is the winemaker and the Rav. 
Mm. The people give the hashkacha. I may have to do my own investigation. Yeah. This is in Shiloh, right? This is in Shiloh. I may have to take a little trip to Shiloh next time I'm in the Holy Land. Well, since Jay was there, I keep it covered now. <laughs> <laughs> what, Jay's not trustworthy with the secret? Is that the problem? I don't know. Today people we're, come with still, a small camera. You we're know? still not 100% comfortable with you books now. We're not letting you have access to that machine. Simple hey. as that. Now, are these are, are there tours open to the public? Are, are, is the Shiloh Winery one that you know will offer people to come in, taste, and all that stuff? Yes, you have to call me in advance to all make right. sure that I'm there and not in the vineyards. But yeah, we have tours, wine tastings, and and I assume because you're here, this is not considered a busy time of year grape wise in Israel. As I see the snowfall in Jerusalem and know what type of weather is going on in the Holy Land, I guess this is not the time of year you have to worry about what's happening in the vineyard. Well, in the winery there are two seasons. Either you're very, very, very busy and there's a lot of work and there's the other season where it's extremely, extremely crazy busy. Really? There's always work in the winery. So there's busy and even more busy. Yeah. There's no boring, huh? Yeah. So what's, have, what, so what's going on now in February? Well, now we are, I mean, just before I left, I just finished uh, bl- tasting and blending the 2013 uh, wines. Wow. And I have some great guys working in the winery now that are racking the wines. Racking and, means kind of like what they... Putting like, them on racks? No, it's kind <laughs> of like... Taking out of barrels, putting into tanks, right. putting back in. Right. A lot, a lot of, sh- of it sounds like a lot of, sh- a lot of movement. A lot of work, right. a lot of hours, a lot of work, a lot of hard work. And right. No, well, there you have it. Uh, you want to tell us what's in front of you so people can get some recommendations? Yeah, we have um, Shiloh Legend Two. Okay, that's the one that got the big rating. You want to go with the two? Yeah. yeah. And then we have uh, Secret Reserve Cabernet, nice. 2012. There you go. And finally, their Creme de la Creme. Uh, they're super duper wonderful wine. This is the number one superstar wine. Mosaic 2010. Not Shiloh. It says Shiloh on top. But it's Shiloh Mosaic. But it's a mosaic. Right. It's a mosaic. Shiloh Mosaic 2010. Right. So it's Shiloh Legend, Shiloh right. Cabernet Reserve, and Shiloh I'm now getting the, mosaic. the I'm getting the hang of it, Jay. Uh, one of the things that I am always inspired to hear from Amichai is about the historical perspective. The significance. Of, yeah. Right. What's it like? Developing a wine in Shiloh, we know, when we know how important Shiloh is to the history of the Jewish people. You know, a lot of people don't know what the importance is. Why don't you tell us about it? Well, go for it, Amichai. The Mishkan was there for 400 years, more or less. And uh, it's where everything started. So it's a very special place there. The first, and, first religious settlement, if you will, would be in Shiloh. Yeah, you could say that. I mean, in terms of the centrality of the Jewish people. Right. I mean, the Mishkan. And, it's a great place to, it's a, first of all, it's a great time to be in Shiloh. And it's a great place because you see everything growing, all the prophecies coming true now. It's true. Right? We were promised that when we, the land will start giving the fruit again. It'll and sprout. then we will come. Right. Uh, and look what's happening. Yemot HaMashiach. So you it's see it in front of you every way. single day. Every day. You must hate visiting Tell New Jersey. Tell us the story about, uh, the, the story you told me about the shards of, of pottery. They found there was an archaeology uh, dig in Shiloh years ago, and the archaeologists found an enormous amount of uh, ceramic um, dishes, but everything was broken. Right. So it was, first of all, it was a lot, much more than you would find anywhere else, but they didn't find even one 
that was whole. Everything was broken. And it was, they were puzzled. The archaeologists, they just didn't understand where this came from. And this was going around, and the Rav of the Yishuv in Shiloh, Rav Elchanan Binun, somebody mentioned oh, it to him. You know, And uh, he said, what's the question? There's a very easy answer. Oh. For 400 years, people came to Shiloh for Pesach. Right. They ate Korban Pesach in their dishes. What they have to do? You couldn't take the dishes away. You had to break them. Right. right? Dusha inside. So that's why you have so many dishes that yeah. are broken there. So it's very simple. Yeah. You, can't like do, you can't do archaeology without uh, Torah. It goes together, you know. It's if you're familiar with halacha and procedure, it helps you with the archaeological dig. Right. It it's does. A good lesson we learned this morning. I like that. Well, there you have it. One of the things we always try to encourage people to do, and one of the reasons we invite you to bring your guests from Israel, right. is because we want people to buy Israeli wines. Absolutely. So whether it's Shiloh or any other great Israeli wine, go and buy it, support the economy, listen to people who are living on the front lines in Israel, who are experiencing Yimot HaMashiach while we, while we are here in this uh, in this spiritually desolate place that we call the tri-state area. Diaspora. Temporarily. That's what you call it, right, Jay? Tri-state. Spiritually desolate, right? Spiritually desolate. That's how you refer to it usually. Absolutely. <laughs> And, and take it from somebody who's spiritually dead. <laughs> <laughs> Very good, Jay. And, um, and it's well worth it, especially with Purim and Pesach coming up. You could buy Israeli wines by the caseload. Absolutely. And leave them in your home until... Uh, and what's great about it is, you know, unlike... It's like the hottest time of the year, so usually you'd think that the retailers would raise the prices. Instead, it's the opposite. You can get them at the best prices of the year. Is right that now. all retailers, Jay? No, but most. Most retailers are dropping prices before yeah, do you know any retailers? I know a few retailers. Like, like name one. I'll give you an example. Okay, there's a, there's a gentleman on West Englewood Avenue in Teaneck. What's his name? His name is Leo. But some people mistakenly call him Lipa. <laughs> and then he has another name. I was there last night. How was that? Isn't it was it, amazing. Isn't the West Englewood crowd a wonderful crowd of people buying a lot of kosher wine over there? Everybody came in. Everybody tasted. It was they tasted and, and they enjoyed and bought a lot of wine. They did. A lot of wine. There you go. What is Lipa's third name? I always forget. There's Leo Lipa. There's another one I can't remember. Anyway, he's a wonderful fellow. Well, his French name is Lionel. Is it Lionel? And, no, I just made it up. And you're telling me <laughs> that, for example, a place like his before Purim Base, I would actually drop. Uh, wine prices to encourage people to buy more during Absolutely. the holiday time. Absolutely. Absolutely. How do you like that? He had some sales last night, didn't he? Yes, they did. Yeah. The um, m- the busiest time of year for a kosher wine, re- the busiest day of the year for a kosher wine retailer is, what did he tell me? I know it was three days we were talking about. I think what it was, you would think it would be the Sunday before Pesach. It's not. It's not Sunday before Rosh Hashanah. Because the, what happens is the pe- Purim Pesach is split. The business is split between Purim and Bezal. For Rosh Hashanah, everyone has nothing in the house after the summer, so they're buying everything right. for Rosh Hashanah and Sukkot. So the busiest retail day of the year, I believe. Single day. Single day, I think, is the it's Sunday. It's the biggest season, but it's the right. biggest single day. Yeah. Is the Sunday, if I'm not mistaken, before Rosh Hashanah. Right. And, and I second think, is the Sunday before Pesach. No, I think second is the Sunday before Purim. Before Purim. Because, again, people are doing the whole Purim. And not Pesach only that, right, exactly. Right. Because a lot of them are not only buying for Purim, they're buying for Pesach, too. 
Tell me, in the States, you don't make Kiddush on Shabbos? Uh, let's see. Kiddush. Let me think. Drink. Hang on. Mitzvot, according to some... Uh, you're supposed are, to make Kiddush on just, Shabbos, right? Just, so why are you talking about Purim and Pesach and Rosh Hashanah? What about every Thursday? Can I, Michael, let me get out my pro-Zionist <laughs> no. statement here, please? <laughs> There are, there are He's some, Israeli. What do you want? <laughs> there are some No, chutzpah. You know why chutzpedik? No, no. I have to be chutzpedik. You know why? Why? Why are we all chutzpedik now? Why? Yemot HaMashiach. Oh, yeah, that's what happened. Yazga, right? Well, that explains it in mine and yeah, That's case. why we're chutzpedik. Um, there are those commentators that say that mitzvot that we do here are just for practice. And they're, and they're, and they're, I gotta be careful how I say this, relatively less meaningful. Outside of Israel, that the real mitzvah has to be done in Israel. So when you ask, did we make kiddush here? Yeah, we make kiddush here, but it's really just practice. You know what I mean? Like, it's not the real. I know. I got to be. Do careful me a favor. That. Practice a lot. <laughs> <laughs> you should practice on Tuesday. Oh, are also. you going to get politically incorrect? Nah, uh, the, the, people know. People know me by now. After thirty years, they know where I'm coming from. I understand? Believe me, I'm not encouraging anybody to do any less mitzvahs. I want to do more and more, even if they're in the diaspora, of there course. Uh, yes, so the, to answer your question, we do say Kiddush every single Shabbat. So buy more multiple, wine. Multiple times, by the way. <laughs> Shockingly enough, multiple <laughs> times. Jay's been spotted initial making 10 Kiddush from Shabbos morning. That's what I was told. Give me another shot. And that who is, didn't hear Kiddush? Come on over exactly, here. Exactly. Who didn't hear Kiddush routine? And now that I hear his son's engaged, trust me, he'll be drinking up a storm Bar tomorrow. Shem. I have an idea. Up. Like, you have second day Yontif, we'll have a second day Shabbos for you. Yeah, you should You'll be drink happy even about even more wine. You should be happy about our second day Yontif routine. It's yeah, dumb. now you'll have second day Shabbos too. Well, we don't need we that. We can organize something We've already like doubled that, right? the whole Yontif thing. Ladies and gentlemen, keep in mind that on the 8th of June, on the 8th of March, rather, uh, Brenda and Jay Booksbaum are being honored at the Renaissance Newark Airport Hotel by the Yeshiva and Kolel Bear Yitzchak of Elizabeth, New Jersey. Uh, Brenda and Jay are among the honorees. We'll talk more about this, but I want to wish you a mazel tov. Thank you. You accepted this honor because... What is it about this institution? I, I think that and here's, here's, a, here's an issue that people don't get. Yeah. They think that local institutions are only about local issues, right. but it's not true. If you take a look, and, and I don't know if you read my notes. I did. If you take a look, it's, it's the grassroots of these local institutions that really create a much wider uh, kind of message to the world that, that we gotta change things. And you want that supported, obviously. Yeah. Alright, so you're being honored. 8th of March. 8th of March. Anybody wants information, it's located in Elizabeth, New Jersey. Yeah. Right? Come and, and participate, and even if you're not going to participate there, participate in your local institution. Will Amichai's wines be there? That might Absolutely. get that might get me to show up. You as know? long as he donates them, it's no problem. <laughs> and he will, right? No problem. There you go. Yeah, nothing like we that. heard it here. You nothing can like, have one bottle. Nothing, nothing like putting Amichai on the spot live on the air. Although I'm told that on how many people are listening? Like five hundred thousand. There's a lot of people out there, but I am told that he'll be back in Malay Levan on the eighth of March. If there's no wine on the table, nothing he can do about it. Okay, uh, that's happening at the Yeshiva and Kolel Bar Yitzchak dinner there in Elizabeth, New Jersey, the uh, dinner at the Renaissance Newark Airport Hotel on Sunday, March the 8th. Jay Booksbaum, the amazing Jay. Enjoy the Kedem presentation today starting at 10 a.m. Not only is it a great Arab Shabbos music mix that's going to be on our stream, but it's, right. it's Rosh Chodesh Adar. You can imagine how much better it's going to be. So a big thank you to you for that, and please enjoy it. Haba Ole, new Litova. Yeah, that was last That's Shabbos. my... That's my uh, New daughter-in-law's name, Tova. Very nice. That's why it's so beautiful. How do you like that? She, and she is beautiful. Amazing. Inside and out. Jay, you're incredible. <laughs> Amichai, I look forward to seeing you in Shiloh. And in Malé Levona. And in Malé Levona. And send regards to Yassi Maimon from Malé Levona. I will. My old friend, who's like, uh, I don't know how many generations in the Rambam. 
The Rambam is his great 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 something like that. Wow, that's really the Maimon family has a celebration each year on the day that the Rambam came to Israel a thousand years ago. I'm sure, or close to a thousand years ago. Yeah, eight hundred. Yeah, more or less. Right. Yeah, eight hundred a thousand. Yeah, who's who's? What do you think we're keeping? Quibbling over two hundred years of life. We're keeping vintages here. Come on, (laughs) who cares? All right, uh, there he is, Amichai Luria, Jay Booksbaum. Thank you to Shiloh Wine. Support the Israeli economy by buying Israeli wine. It's a message we'll continue to give right here at JM in the AM.
Jam and the AM. David Dax and company with that Shabbos medley. I want to thank our friends at JewishWorldReview.com who continue to recommend our amazing live stream to their readers. You can print out about a million, well, maybe that's an exaggeration, articles about Israel and the Jewish world uh, by going to JewishWorldReview.com before Shabbos and undergoing that interesting process of deciding which articles to print out. I want to remind everybody the Soul to Soul concert starring Chaim Israel and Benny Friedman is this coming Sunday happening at the Brooklyn School of Music on Claussen Avenue between President and Union Streets. Mendy Pellin will be there with Jew Bellish. Tickets at uh, Judaica World and Crown Heights, also JewishTickets.com and SoulToSoul.org. The Soul to Soul concert, always a great event. Eitan Katz tomorrow night in Passaic. Check that out. Always an event and always amazing when he visits a town, and you'll have a chance to see him in Passaic Clifton tomorrow evening. Malcolm Holmline is in Israel on this Erev Shabbos Parshas Truma. It is Rosh Chodesh Adar, and candle lighting here is at 516. Right now, 4 degrees with a wind chill of minus 13. What's the weather like in Israel? We'll ask Malcolm. Uh, he is the um, executive vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations and joins us each Friday for the weekly update here at JM in the AM. Mr. Malcolm Honline, welcome back to JM in the AM. It's great to be with you from sunny Jerusalem. Sunny Jerusalem. About 12 hours ago at a wedding, someone walked over to me with a telephone and showed me photos they had just gotten of a snow-covered Jerusalem. And this morning I heard on the news about these road closures in Jerusalem. Malcolm, what's the real story? Is there snow in the holy city? Doesn't it just tell you how the media distorts reality? And <laughs> you can't it. believe what you hear. I love well, it. Well, the truth is that there was a snowstorm yesterday. It, it, it started much later than anybody predicted. That they closed the roads already in the afternoon uh, because you know, uh, one, the, the the roads are very hilly in the mountainous uh, areas around here, and uh, second, that people don't know how to drive in, in snow. <laughs> And uh, they have plows out. They, this, the truth is now that it is beautiful here. It's sunny. It's still the, the streets are still covered with snow, but it's melting. Uh, and and I'm telling you that it's sunny. Let me clarify a couple of things, uh, folks. That uh, that that might sound like I'm correcting Malcolm. He said the plows are out. I think he meant the plow is out. I think that's what he meant. Because so I think there's one or maybe two. No, not cow. <laughs> Wow. I know, I'm saying. There may not be more but than they one. they have many. I, I saw know. three or four right on one corner at one time. <laughs> that actually makes sense. That actually makes sense. They would gather them all together in one spot. They were <laughs> making a minion, I think, at uh, the... You know, uh, you know me. The truth is they were out as soon as the snow, the snow fell very suddenly. It was like uh, hail. And in literally, in minutes, the streets were covered. And then there was a lighter, uh, a lighter snow uh, fall, and it accumulated, I think, four or five inches at least. All right. Well, if anybody wants to hear my routine about the re- snow removal in Jerusalem, you can go back to the archive from the big blizzard in Jerusalem. That one, one of the most interesting analyses ever, if you ask me. All right. A lot going on. Did the conference group, the conference of presidents group, have an address by the prime minister? Has the, has the prime minister been too busy campaigning? No, the Prime Minister made time for us. He came, as promised, Monday night. We had a dinner, and he addressed it. Um, he gave a very strong address, and essentially he said why I'm going, where I'm going, 
and why now am I going? And, and that's it. the case about what, why the urgency, why to Washington, and why to Congress. It's 100%. A couple of weeks ago, we were at 70 or 80%. This is it. He's going at this point, right? As of now, he's going. And I don't know if you saw that Chuck Schumer came out. Others have said that people should be there. I hope that the administration will say the same and will, uh, even if not encourage, at least let it be clear that uh, that Democrats should feel free to go. Uh, I know that there were a few who did not acknowledge, um, who, who didn't uh, uh, yet come out clearly uh, about their intention. A few who did come out clearly, maybe 15, who have said that they would not participate. Right. I hope they change their mind. Well, it's been a while since Iran has been topic one in our conversations, but since we're already on it, let's continue with it. Um, on top of this news, that it's much more likely now that the Prime Minister will be addressing the Iran issue to a joint session of Congress on March 3rd. In addition to that, this week we learn, and we turn to you for the accuracy or inaccuracy of this, this week we learn that the United States is not briefing Israel on talks with Iran. Do they normally do so? And if yes, why the change? If the, I'm sorry, the change in what? If they, Do they normally uh, brief Israel on their talks with Iran? Oh, brief. I'm sorry, I couldn't hear that. So, the, the, yes, they have been briefing Israel all along, and they have made it very public that they've been briefing Israel all along. The, the And that, according to White House officials that we met this week and others, is continuing. The question is, what is the quality of the briefing? Uh, Yossi Cohen, the National Security Advisor, was in Washington. Phil Gordon from the White House was in Israel. Uh, there were other uh, exchanges going on by phone. Uh, I think that um, the question that, that uh, has come up, and, and you've seen statements from some in the administration or spokespeople saying, well, Israel distorts what, what, what the information they get or misrepresents the, the nature of the talks or leaks information. The, and so they may not be giving them up-to-date details on some aspects of the negotiations, which would be unfortunate. And I think the, the uh, wanted information sharing has come under question in, in the last week. Um, what is the um, – how do these rumors start? <laughs> when when we start reading articles in newspapers that Israel's not being briefed or not being briefed enough, as you put it, uh, on the Iran situation, I mean, you know, we we sort of like to think that when there, where there's smoke, there's fire. You know, how, how does this how does how does this type of story get out there? That's a very good question, and the and from which side does it get out there? Right, our administration people trying to stick to Israel and to say and give warnings to the administration from the administration that they will diminish the level of information sharing? Or is it Israelis who are trying to send a message that we're not getting information? And, and Or there could be sideline players who have an interest in increasing the tensions. So it can come from a variety of sources. It's not quite clear here. The Various spokespeople have addressed the issue from uh, the American side. I don't know that anybody officially has addressed it here. Right. Um, and in general, is there any type of? Uh, uh, well, let me put it differently. ISIS essentially, aside from the weather, I and I'm being serious about that because it seems like the weather leads every national newscast now. Um, aside from the weather, ISIS is dominating the news. Iran likes that. Iran likes when everyone is distracted by some other uh, rogue regime or murderous group that's dominating the headlines? 
Well, I think they like it on a number of levels. One is when attention is diverted from Iran, they move ahead. If you look at the statements that Rouhani has made, <coughs> I'm sorry, just in the last week about the progress, they said Iran. He said that Iran is um, speeding up uh, their progress in the nuclear program and nuclear field, uh, and the, the negotiations. This is these are his words. Received so much attraction. And you and cry that they overshadow these activities. We are running at a higher speed. So on that level, they're very happy when they see um, the the attention diverted. And there are actual practical implications of, of these words. When we see the the um, surface to surface missile uh, developments that they have, the new transporter erector launchers, the tells for the Shahab three missile. The I know these are very technical, but these are significant when you have a multiple reentry vehicles and and better GPS guidance systems for their their missiles. All of these developed in in the time while everybody's focused on the negotiations, they're focused on on, on moving ahead. That's one level. The second uh, level is that the, the emphasis on ISIS, where they try to portray and others try to portray this as a common interest of the United States and Israel and the, it, Iran. Uh, to fight ISIS, and therefore they're cooperating in Iraq, what, which really means that we're turning over the keys to Iraq, to Iran, and they are investing a billion dollars there. They have 130,000 Shiite militia, and the Iraqi army itself is only about 40,000 guys who are poorly armed. So we're, we're seeing the uh, transformation of Iraq into a, an Iranian subsidiary, and the the fact that you know we're bombing the united states coalition and iran is bombing and that the the uh, that there is indirect or direct uh, coordination uh, works to their benefit and they say look we're an ally you need us we we can cooperate together let's get the nuclear thing out of the way i hope that will not be the the case that the the iran's nuclear aspirations are only meant to reinforce and expand the capacity that they have to create damage to counter Western, the local, and, and interests of every one of our allies uh, in, in the region and way beyond the region. So, um, and, and we see the aggressiveness of Iran uh, in Sudan, as in Yemen, as in other places, uh, Iraq, of course, in Syria and Lebanon, but also around Israel. And as the Prime Minister pointed out in his remarks, they're there on three sides, Gaza with Hamas, Lebanon and Hezbollah, and now in the Golan and uh, they're encircling Israel, but they're encircling the whole region as well. You know, this is a very important point that he, and not that I'm advising the Prime Minister, but he should keep this in mind for March 3rd. The bulk of his speech, every of his speeches, each time he's addressed the Iran issue at the UN or in Congress, has been about their capabilities in terms of uh, nuclear weapons and how close they are, etc., etc. I'm not minimizing the importance of that message. But what you just said in terms of geographically, the way they're spreading out, taking over, and having this influence in so many other the countries that might be a very important point for him to make there i think it's it it, it will be part of his thing it's a presentation at least i expect that he will present what is the danger iran represents not just to israel uh, you know iran the term i think he used was rampaging right. in the region and and the fact is that they are making progress on on um, on every front virtually and the growing acceptance of Assad or the belief that he will retain, you know, some area would be a victory for them. Hezbollah and the Syrian army and IRGC uh, agents uh, are trying to deal with the uh, rebels in, in, in Golan, putting themselves there. 
uh, they want to put thousands of Hezbollah uh, guys on the borders of uh, of Israel and Jordan. The RGC and the Al-Quds brigades uh, are outside of Dara in southern Syria, which is very near the border uh, of Israel. And there's been heavy fighting uh, going on there. So Iran, it's uh, the Al-Quds commander, Soleimani, a name everybody should by now know from this show, uh, uh, talk about exporting the Islamic Revolution throughout the region. I mean, right. they're saying it all. And, and, the, and they talk from, and, and listen, he, he gives the, the dimension, he said, from Bahrain to Iraq to Syria to Yemen to North Africa. We and, just don't listen. They're telling us what they're doing. And, I'm, and I'm, not to nitpick on a detail, but the economic situation in Iran doesn't help prevent them from doing it. It doesn't slow them down. We've been. That's not nitpicking. That's exactly a very good point. And you would think that with all the sanctions and with the dropping of oil prices, etc. Right, the oil, that, right. That they would not have the funds. And the truth is that they divert the funds. They don't take care of the people. I had an opportunity to meet people who came out of Iran when we were in Vienna last week. Uh, in fact, just after the broadcast, we met with people who, who literally just came out to Vienna. And they told us how, how much impact the sanctions are, in fact, having on people. But that the government itself doesn't suffer. You know, they can divert the monies that they have. They still are selling oil, even though it's a reduced amount and obviously at a reduced price. And they, the relief, the sanctions relief that they have gotten so far has helped the, the economy. So, you know, they are diverting the funds from, um, from what would normally, normal countries would do in investing in the people and then the infrastructure of the country right. to their military adventurism. Right, so the sanctions and even the drop in oil prices only has a small effect on this operation. For this, they'll find the money. That's, that's yeah, but, but, Nahum, it, 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 you have to think on the other side, which is why the sanctions are so important, if they didn't have the sanctions, right. if they had the additional income, Think of how much more damage they would be doing. Oh, yeah, I'm not minimizing that 100%. I, I just am saying that when it comes to this, uh, they're going to make sure they have the money that they need in order to carry it out. That's their priority, much more right. much more than building the country, supporting the people, etc., etc. And what we saw on another front is this attempt to reconcile between Hamas and Iran. Mashal met with Soleimani in July in, uh, in Turkey after the Gaza War, but now... They're talking about uh, uh, UN reports about uh, about the alarming rate at which they are being uh, reweaponized in in Gaza and tunnels being built and the missile tests. This is coming from a UN report, mm. so you know you can multiply it by several fold. The the um, and that the uh, rapprochement between them was set back a little bit because I think they were demanding that Mashal step down. But in any event, what we're seeing is Hamas seeking to rebuild its ties uh, with Iran and to to get arms and further support for their expanding military capacity. It's America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program. Heard and listeners sponsored WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope, Rockland County at 91.9 on the FM dial, broadcasting live from the Sonia and Robert Gold Studios in Jersey City, New Jersey. Around the world on the web, jmnam.org. A special greeting to those tuned in on the NSN app from anywhere around the world. Malcolm Honline is in Jerusalem. He's the executive vice president of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. Uh, Let's go to uh, what happened this week, uh, ISIS and the beheading of 21 uh, Coptic Christians. Um, You know, 
I, I hate to I hate to say it like this, but for those of us who wonder about um, public outrage among you know freedom loving people back in the late 1930s and early 1940s. It is unbelievable. With all the reaction in Washington and the discussion about the president and how he's dealing with all this, it, it is unbelievable that we, as free people, who you know, who who um, uh, tend to think that we're out there fighting, you know, for those who are who are suffering, for those who are victims, are not raising our voices nearly enough. And I think that whether it's our community or other communities in this country, especially. Uh, we've got to wake up to this. There, the, 21 people are beheaded like this in this brutal fashion with this unbelievably insane video going around the world, and there's hardly a reaction. So the, the, the fact is the Jewish community has been speaking out. We have been speaking out. We are in touch with Coptic leaders, both in the United States and elsewhere. Uh, it is dangerous sometimes for us to do it. Not for us, but for them, because then they, it's already painted, readily painted as then, you know, Israel or the Zionists or the, or part of a conspiracy and may endanger them. But frankly, I agree with you. I can't remain silent when we see this, when we see the Yazidis being tortured in the way they are. We, we just met now with a group here that is doing remarkable things. Israelis who go in to help, uh, civilians, who go in to help refugees, provide aid, provide assistance, not non-military assistance, um, to Syrians, to people, in, in, uh, Christians, to cops, to others. The fact that the, the president wouldn't identify them as Christians was, was surprising to many people because they were killed because they were Christians and because, and, and the, the um, uh, ISIS or, or didn't make any secret of it. They, these people were going there for work. And the United Nations, Egypt once has been acting against the, the ISIS troops there. They bombed twice last week, and, you know, with UAE, they had carried out other bombings, which the United States and others opposed, and they want now a UN-led coalition to intercede. I met with a group from Benghazi, and it was horrific what they were telling us, and most of all about the failure of the West to support them. In, in Libya is completely disintegrating, but the growth of IS there, uh, and of Iran's influence there is is very obvious, and we're going to add that after Sudan to the list of countries falling under their dominance. And this is very scary. And what what's especially scary about Libya is that it's it's 300 miles to Sicily from Libya, and the Italians are apoplectic about this, not only because of the flow of people, but the statements made by IS in in Libya that we will conquer Rome, we will break your crosses, we will enslave your women, and this is this is evoking a strong response. People should read the, the, the speech of the new president of Italy, a very courageous and, I thought, pretty bold uh, uh, speech. But Italy is, is very scared, and this means all of Europe, because once they get into any part of Europe, they can go anywhere. So, so what happened during Gaddafi's reign? The, the radical Islamists were not able to establish any power or I mean right, because he controlled it you know Libya is 147 tribes it's not a real country and you know you need a strong power there centralized power to to keep control of it now unfortunately he was a brutal dictator that's not the kind of things you want to see in, in a place like this but you know this is uh, um, uh, Europeans all along Italy always had a special relationship with Libya 
going back many decades, war, etc. And the, um, uh, but the, the, the deterioration of the situation there, you know, we're talking about twenty to 30,000 troops of IS in Syria and Iraq, but also in Afghanistan, Algeria, Egypt, Libya, and by the way, and also presence in countries like Jordan, Yemen, Lebanon, Saudi Arabia. So they have become a regional operation. It's no longer isolated particular areas, and they can send in troops to all of these different areas. They recruit more and more. And, you know, that this week, and your question about the brutality, which is so important and so ignored generally, in a city called uh, al-Baghdadi this week in Iraq, they burnt 45 Iraqis. 45 were immolated. And you don't see a, a, a response or, or, you know, everybody's still focused that they, they would much rather deal with a house in Israel that they feel was inappropriately built than dealing with the, the deaths of thousands and thousands of people and, and such brutal uh, um, terrorists and, and extremists who, who are being uh, recruited all the time to this horrible cause. It's, you know, without description. And then, then you see in Iraq signs with billboards proclaiming the prowess of these militias with pictures of Khamenei and Khomeini, uh, you know, again, underscoring what is happening. You have the two dynamic forces, IS and Iran, both spelling disaster for the region. Without a rational and maybe irrational anger from the leader of the free world, it is going to be very hard to rile everybody up to start thinking about how to win this war against ISIS, it's the, it's the entire West is is mealy mouthed about it. I think that the uh, approach has to be to declare them, and I, and I think there have been statements declaring them, uh, you know, as terrorists and beyond the pale, and calling on the countries in the region. I think even the speeches this week to to uh, go after them and to to identify them. Uh, but it's always couched when, it, when we identify it as as radical Islam. The fact is that this is the way to fight Islamophobia: is to have it identified for what it is and who it is, rather than not identifying it, and then everybody assumes that it's the entire uh, population. You know, the failure and the unwillingness to name names and shame and to go after is is only feeds this cancer. This is something that you have to eradicate. It needs the strongest kind of radiation, one by being exposed and being said who it is and, and why. When Muslim Brotherhood members are invited to the State Department, as they were a week ago or so, the Egyptians go berserk. And they say, here's a terrorist entity, and you're fetting their, their representatives in the, in the United States. So, you know, if this... This has to be dealt with in a comprehensive, serious way where we isolate those responsible and eradicate them, where we, we, we can no longer couch it in, um, in terms that, that somehow this is something we can counter. So you must have... You must, any mistakes till now. You must have been very frustrated when you heard the president address the gatherings in Washington this week. I mean, he... And I know that he got a lot of criticism for it, but... You know, he, he refuses to identify who the enemy is. He refuses to use strong language. Feels the need to 
placate, you know, groups at a time, sends representatives out there to encourage us why it's not important to physically, you know, murder these people who are murdering others, or kill these people, I should say, who are murdering others. It's, 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 a, it's a backwards message that's coming out. Well, I was in, in, uh, I was traveling, so I only could read the, the messages, and the, it's all bits of it on, on the news. Um, I think that in some cases they didn't mention it and, and to talk about it, but it's always it, it doesn't come across as if we are declaring war. Right. All of the West has to declare war right. on the terrorists. When we have incidents in, in Paris, you see the reaction right away. Valls makes a great statement. Talan says something. But what fundamentally changes? What what is it that we are doing to to make a difference? And we see them spreading their influence, gaining more territory, uh, claiming more adherence all the time. And you know the rampaging description is not wrong. So what 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 is the world? What is this? Uh, the civilized world, the Western world, uh, those who are supposed to be on the forefront of this doing is the critical question statements and do we support our allies do we criticize egypt for bombing after the 21 cops are are killed or beheaded uh, as they were or do we do we um uh, stand with them what they're doing in the sinai for instance and i'm only picking this one example of of uh, egypt they find two two and a half kilometer long tunnels um and in egypt turns to france and to Russia to buy fighters and other things because they don't want to buy from the United States or the United States is not selling it to them. And yet we are, uh, we're, we're very tough on, on Egypt and on other countries, and yet on the critical parties, we have not demonstrated the same kind of resolve. Yeah, no question. Well, what do you hear in the aftermath of the uh, terrorist attack, attack in Denmark last Saturday night? Well, as you know, the people there... Uh, that they have held some vigils, but this has been in the offing for a long time. This shouldn't have been a surprise. We know the presence of these elements in, in Denmark and the security that has been present at Jewish institutions for a long time. When I was there years ago, I had meetings with the leaders of the community and with government officials about it. Uh, and the, the question now is what are they doing to find out what connections did this guy have, what other what other individuals? I know that they were looking for two supposed accomplices uh, that I've not heard that they have apprehended. Uh, but I have to tell you, when we were in Vienna, the willingness of public officials there now to to describe it as Islamic radicalism or fanaticism and extremism, to talk about it in terms very different than what we have heard in, in the past, and even going to the OSCE and, and UN agencies and talking about the rise of anti-Semitism and the uh, frustration that many of them feel about the the response to it, the, the real changes that are necessary, legislative, security, all the things. It just can't be an immediate response where policemen surround the building. You know, right as soon as the Denmark thing happened, I mean, literally, I would say in an hour, we had eight policemen added to the security detail that accompanied us. Right. And, you know, it spreads quickly because they know that there's going to be copycats. They know that it's networked around Europe. And the, the um, you know, the failure is is not just the one incident. It's the collective, it's the cumulative failure to address this in a serious way. And now I'm not sure it can be addressed. 
By the way, even in Denmark, officials are, uh, as the New York Times reported, are reluctant to uh, uh, d- discuss the connection between that attack and radical Islam. Like everyone's mm-hmm. af- everyone's afraid to to even mention the same words in the same sentence. Uh, what do you think of Mayor Giuliani's uh, assertion that President Obama does not love America? Uh, I don't want to get into that. I, actually, <laughs> I only saw it uh, yesterday for the first time. Uh, I did not, obviously being away, don't have that much access. I mean, you can understand someone from his political standpoint's frustration with Washington. I'm not saying that the statement was a... Well, I thought his statement in support of Netanyahu was, was very good. Right. I, 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 I've heard increasingly people, you know, making comparisons to Chamberlain to... Right. To, to the 1930s and right. stuff, which is something we we always rejected because, you know, that, that it was a unique period. But I think people are sensing that there's something happening that is of such a magnitude. And you know that even on the show for more than 10 years and much more. Yeah, we're getting on 20 years already. Right. I talked about it. We warned about it. Yeah. When we could have stopped it, we could have dealt with it. And, and I don't take any joy in being right. I want to be wrong on these things. I think it was evident what was going to happen. I think it was the mid '90s where you first told us about uh, Islamic fundamental. You didn't call it radical Islam in those days. You called it Islamic fundamentalism. Exactly. And I'm telling you, when I say 20 years, I don't think I'm exaggerating. I assume you. 1988. I gave my first speech on it. 88. Yeah. Wow. I'm assuming you knew Uri Orbach. I did not well, but yes, I encountered him many times. He was an amazing guy, and the tributes to him have been remarkable, and, and uh, actually uh, Bennett, who, uh, who heads the party to which Uri Orbach uh, belonged and was a minister uh, and was a very close friend of, of his, Naftali Bennett, was actually speaking to the conference when he got the word that he passed away, and he gave a very moving, on-the-spot eulogy to him of him that was... Uh, really touched everybody wow uh latest polls you're in jerusalem and apparently the zionist union has taken a slight lead over Likud. one of the reasons by the way you know there's a i don't know if we call it a scandal at this point but there's a uh a brouhaha brewing in jerusalem about the way that the prime minister's house is managed and specifically the expenses that are incurred in the Prime Minister's office and house. Is this a coincidence, Malcolm, less than a month before the election, that a story like this, like this comes out? Yeah, no coincidence in Israel. <laughs> <laughs> this, this has been going on for some time. There have been charges about, uh, you know, against the Sarah Netanyahu, against her expenses, and yet when you compare them to expenses of previous, I mean, it, it's... <laughs> It, it, it is not pleasant. It's not nice to watch. I'm sure it's embarrassing overseas when they see charges about you know collecting bottle empty bottles and right. what happens to money. But the fact is that the the polls are are vacillating all the time. The Likud was ahead last week. Now, according to three polls, uh, Zionist campus moved ahead. I think Bennett picked up a American seat this experts. week. They're all learning. They have learned. We had a, a session here with these remarkable young people talking about how the internet is being used in, in campaigns in Israel now and, and their impact and, you know, social media, et cetera, very extensively. They all Twitter block, even while they're speaking at the con- at our meetings, <laughs> they were Twittering and sending out messages. Uh, it, it's really astonishing for those of us who are not so up-to-date with all of these things. But the... <laughs> 
so I think in a month, with a month left, almost there will be many more changes in the in the polls. I it think depends on external things. It depends on internal things. And the real question is not who gets necessarily the most votes, as you remember last time, but who right. put together a coalition. I think Bennett got a seat this week in uh, the poll that I saw. He's on the increase. Uh, Baruch Marzal, according to the courts, is back in, for those of us who know him and find him to be an interesting figure. He'll be uh, somewhat of a factor, I guess, in this election now. So he's back in. And one of the things I read this week, which caught me a little by surprise, Malcolm, I'm sure you knew this. I never knew it. I didn't realize that there was really almost no debates, formal debates between major candidates during campaigns in Israel. I assume it's the same during this election, right? Right. It's amazing. There are debates by representatives of the parties. Uh, They go really local here. I mean, every village, every town, there are people are out campaigning. Miri Regev moved into some sort of, uh, I guess, a RV and is traveling from town to place to place. Everybody is out there every night speaking, uh, the prime minister much less so, because it's much more complicated for him to do it, so he has to have more proxy people. Um, and he, of course, is busy still trying to run the country at the same time that all of this is going on. So I wonder- uh, it, it's a fight over very... A few votes, I think, about how it was split. There's still significant undecided uh, that that or at or, or a shift vote that could turn. And I, the question is not just what people say to the pollsters. As you know, Israelis are notorious for telling the truth to the pollsters and lying at the polls. That uh, uh, you know, when they go into the polling booth, surprisingly, the number one issue is the economy. Yeah, uh, but I think that when they vote, security will still be the dominant concern. You know, we had Stephen Miller on on Monday. He did the poll for Times of Israel that the, the, the biggest statistic that's been quoted most often is the 78 percent of Israelis who don't trust President Obama on the Iran issue. You know, what was interesting about that that when you is the um, is the comparison to uh, American jury. It, it, it's almost an identical number of those American Jews who do trust. Uh, President Obama on the Iran issue. With Israelis, it's almost 80% who don't. Is, is it all about geography, that the Israelis are simply living in a much more dangerous neighborhood? It's a factor, but uh, there's been a lot of distrust and a lot of the statements that have come out and the characterizations. And, you know, for Israelis, this is a, a life-and-death issue. And, and, and it is not a reflection, by the way, of a lack of support for the United States or identification with the United States. Those numbers remain remarkably, remarkably high, probably the highest in the world, of, uh, you know, liking America, caring for America, et cetera. Um, it's very uh, directed at the at the president, and that's one of the reasons why this the fight doesn't have the resonance that it might have had, let's say, when Clinton, who was much more popular amongst the Israeli people right. and could appeal directly to the people, whereas President Obama's numbers don't really allow for that. BB's coming to Washington. It looks more and more likely at this point, and the vice president will not be in the room, right? He's made that clear. He's going to South America. Unbelievable. I'll tell you, this is good. I, I, I just hope that this trip happens and, and goes off without any, you know, major disagreements or, uh, anybody, uh, you know, creating an even further political rift due to it. I mean, do you think it has the potential to just sort of, you know, stay on the radar and not go too crazy? 
Well, we see that there are people who are issuing statements uh, in the United States who want to exploit this against Republicans, against Israel, against, you know, just to, to, to take a, a stand of those who don't want to see America involved in the Iran issue. In Israel, obviously, it would become more and more political issue. People say that the Prime Minister embarrassed Israel, that the Prime Minister shouldn't never have fallen into the trap. Others who are very strongly urging him to take advantage of the opportunity. You saw uh, people like Elie Wiesel and Alan Dershowitz, many others, uh, have weighed in on it in support of the Prime Ministers. Others who have uh, weighed in against it. Right. It's, it's regrettable. I think now that it's happening, it's time for everybody to, to get behind the Prime Minister's visit. They should at least listen to what he has to say, they can comment afterwards. But right now, I think uh, once the decision was made, and it's not reversible, I think people should stop the public declarations and should let's wait and hear what he has to say. And most of all, support the overwhelming preponderance of positive in the U.S.-Israel relationship, not let this uh, divert attention away from those, and most of all, from the common goal we have, which is making sure Iran does not have a nuclear weapon. Yeah, I'm, hope, I'm hoping that it's a common goal. I hope it's a common goal. Right. We I have hope to make it a common goal. I know. we got to fight for it to be a common goal because uh, not everybody in Washington, it seems, uh, understands how common a goal it needs to be. All right, I just got a photo from Jerusalem. Uh, listener Simon sent me a photo from Jerusalem. The way these cars are buried in that one inch of snow, Malcolm, it'll be about a month before someone drives them out, I'm telling you. I didn't say one inch. I said five <laughs> inches, number one. Number no! I'm I can look out my room, see the cars still covered, but I can tell you the snow on the balcony is gone already. Now, my point being, it's not that much snow on the car. It'll still take a month for them to get it out. That's my point. <laughs> but That's... You, you know that people drove up, people came last night, because their kids never saw snow and they wanted to see it. They yeah. stay overnight in the hotel just so they could see it. Now the roads are closed. They're still closed, by the way. Right, so they'll be they'll be in Jerusalem. Didn't make it to Jerusalem. We'll spend Shabbos in Tel Aviv or right. someplace else. Or they'll be in Jerusalem for a while at this point. Um, have a wonderful Shabbos in the Holy Land. We will speak uh, from here, Bezrat Hashem, next week. Malcolm Holmline is Executive Vice Chairman, the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. We call it the weekly update. Put it in your calendar for every single week. And a special hello to those tuned in on the NSN app from around the world. Four degrees outside. It's Friday. Rosh Chodesh Adar. Mishanichnas Adar Marbim Bissimcha. Erev Shabbos Parshas Truma. When Adar arrives, the joy is increased. That's what it means. Candle lighting at 516 on this Erev Shabbos. 5.16. This time each and every Friday, every Erev Shabbos, with great pleasure, we present Rabbi Benjamin Uden, spiritual leader of Congregation Shomrei Torah in Fairlawn, New Jersey, to address the entire listening audience concerning the Torah portion of the week. Good morning, Rabbi Uden. Good morning, Nachum. Good Erev Shabbos, everybody. Tomorrow we have the privilege of reading Parshas Truma. In reality, we are off and running. The last five parshios of the book of Shmos, Truma, Titzave, Kisisa, Payakel Pekude, according to the Ramban in his introduction to the book of Shmos, these five parshios constitute the culmination and the apex of our Geula. The book of Shmos is the Sefer HaGeula, the book of our redemption, and it was really a three-part process. The physical Yitzias Mitzrayim, leaving of Egypt. The second part, our leaving of Egypt for the purpose of 
receiving the Ten Commandments and creating the bond, eternal bond, between God and the Jewish people at Sinai, and finally, according to the Ramban, perpetuating this relationship in an ongoing fashion in the mitzvah found in Parshas Truma, one of three, according to the Sefer of Chinuch, the mitzvah of building a sanctuary for God. In the desert, it was the Mishkan. In Eretz Yisrael, it was the first two, Bate Mikdash, please God, and the third one will be rebuilt speedily in our day as we conclude each and every Shmona Esrei Sheyabona Beis HaMikdash Bimheira Biyameinu Regarding the building of the Beis HaMikdash the Chafetz Chaim in his commentary on the Torah cites the Psikta which says, and I translate that when God told Moshe the Jewish people were to construct a sanctuary, Moshe literally was aghast and he said, my goodness how can man make a house for God when as Shlomo says Shlomo HaMelech, when he offered his prayer, his tefillah at the inauguration of the first base of Migdash, Hashemayim Ushmei Hashemayim Lo Yechal Kalucha. Literally, the heavens and the heavens, heavens cannot contain you. And yet, we are told to make a house for God. How can that be? So Hashem said, No, not in accordance with my koach, with my potential, am I asking you to do, but rather lefi kocham, in accordance with yours, and simply esrim keresh batzafon give me 20 boards in the north, 20 in the south, 8 in the west, and very simply, this will be sufficient. Secondly, when Hashem said to Moshe in the fourth book of the Torah, Korbani Lachmi, my daily offering, Moshe said, My goodness, if I were to tr- attempt to offer all the animals in the world, it would not be sufficient. How in the world can we give God a daily offering? And Hashem says to him once again, Not like you think, but Akeves Echod Taseva Boker. One lamb in the morning and one in the afternoon. And finally, when Hashem said to Moshe that each person should give kofer nafsho in Pasha's Kisisa, literally a redemption for his soul, so Moshe said, come on, how is that possible? We find in Tehillim 49 that... Och lofodo ish and v'yekar pidyon nafsham. Literally, too costly is the redemption of the soul. And now, how can we even attempt? And once again, God says, no, not like you think, but simply a machzis hashekel. And so, teaches the Chofetz Chaim, based upon this psikta, a very interesting concept. And that is that God does not ask of man more than man can do.
And so, what do we find? That you are obligated to do what you can do. And so, too, the wise King Chalaman says, Whatever you have the potential, within your realm, you are to do. And therefore, we find our rabbis teach us beautifully, you open for me, you take the initiative, even an opening as small as a needle. And I will open for you, says God, an opening that will be as wide as a whole great hall. And therefore, the essence of this is that each individual has to do theirs in each and every realm. And so, I'd like to suggest the following, based upon this beautiful understanding of the Chofetz Chaim. Based upon the Yalkut Shimoni, as found on the first of the Ten Commandments, where it says, Not Onochi Hashem Elokechem, I am your God in the plural. Says Rab Levi, it says, Onochi Hashem Elokecha, I am your God in the singular. Melamed, this comes to teach us that when God spoke to the Jewish nation at that time, call Echad Mi Yisrael, each and every individual member of Israel, Hoya Omeir, they said to themselves, Imi Hadibur Medaber. God is talking to me directly. And it's based further on the Pasuk, whereby it says, Kol Hashem Bakoach. What does it mean? That God spoke literally with strength, not His strength, but in the strength of in each individual in accordance with what each individual could understand. And so, the same commandment of thou shalt not steal, some understood literally not to put their hand in the next person's pocket and take out their money. Others understood on a much higher level that there cannot be genevas das. You can't fool the next person, not in terms of a tangible object, but in terms of a concept. Each person in accordance with their ability. And comes along the Medrash, that same Yalkut, and says, and don't be surprised, Altisma, don't be surprised that there was this personalized presentation of the Ten Commandments. After all, Haman, the same Mun, the same manna, which descended for the Jewish nation, kol echod v'yechod, each individual, hoyatoamo l'fi kolcho. Each person tasted it in accordance with their ability and in accordance with their desire. It was personalized. And so it was a personalized deliverance of man. There was a personalized presentation of the Ten Commandments. And I'd like to suggest 
on the verse at the beginning of this week's parsha, the Osulin Mikdash, make for me a sanctuary, the and I will dwell in them, and not in it, as our rabbis point out, but rather in them. Once again, there's a personalized creation of Hashras Hashchina. The purpose of the base Hamigdash was, the Tanchuma teaches us, it is a place of Aliyah Laregel. It is a place of ascending and going to God's home three times a year, and it is the Makom Torah. And I'd like to suggest that each and every home must become a Mikdash Ma'at. Each and every home is to be that special miniature base Hamigdash, and each and every one of us can create that personalized, individualized Hashras Hashchina. And so what one individual takes to create their Hashras Hashchina can be different for the next one. But each individual, in accordance with their ability, has just that capacity. And so, the Chavetz Chaim writes that each person is obligated to study Torah in accordance with their capacity. One whose ability and level is on the study of Mishnayos, that's where he belongs. The one who can study Talmud, study Gemara, that's where they belong. The one that's able to study Shulchan Aruch, that's where they belong. And so too, interestingly, he points out, regarding the mitzvah of giving tzedakah, each person has to give in accordance with their capacity. And he quotes the Gemara in Psachim 118a very sharply that says that a rich man cannot satisfy his obligation of bringing a korban, an offering with the korban of a poor person. And as the Gemara says, Ashir Bishoro, the wealthy man has to bring his axe, Oni Biseyo, and the poor man brings his sheep. And moreover, Ashir Shehevi Karbanani, if a wealthy individual were to quote shortchange himself and bring the offering of a poor individual, he does not satisfy his obligation and moreover, it's as if he has brought a nun consecrated offering into the Beis HaMikdash. The idea is that each person in accordance with their capacity must build a Beis HaMikdash. It's not simply Bilvavi Mishkon Evnet. It's not just within our hearts that we build that personalized Hashras Shechina, but rather it is literally each and every home. And our rabbis tell us very interestingly that the Beis Hamigdash actually imitated 
the home of Avram and Sarah. As Rashi brings at the end of Parshas, Chaye Sarah, on the verse that Yitzchak brings Rivka, Ha'ohela, to the tent of Sarah Emo. So Rashi says that when he brought Rivka in, it was restored to the tent of his mother. How so? That as long as Sarah was alive, there was a Ne'er Doluk, the Erev Shabbos, the Erev Shabbos. There was literally the light that burned from one Friday to the next. And so too you have in the Beis HaMikdash, the menorah. And there was the miracle in the menorah that every single night the Kohen lit the seven branches of the menorah and every morning, and he put the same amount of oil into each branch, and every morning six out of the seven would be out. The Ner Maharavi, the middle branch, burned and burned and burned the entire day until he extinguished it the following evening to relight them all again. Why? This was a sign. This was the menorah Edus. The menorah was testimony that God's presence was found in the Beis Hamikdash. Rashi continues, and Rashi says that throughout the week there was bracha mitsuya be'isa there was a blessing found in the dough of Sarah Imenu and similarly we find in this week's parsha of the um, truma the second of the two positive mitzvos in the parsha that of literally putting forth the lechem haponim, the showbread, which kept their freshness again from week to week, again demonstrating hashras hashchina, God's presence in the home of Avraham and Sarah, his presence in the Beis Hamikdash, and finally the last one is Anan. Koshur al ohel literally, there was a cloud that was above the tent, demonstrating God's presence, and the Mishkan is called Mishkan Ho'edus, literally the sanctuary of testimony, that it was a testimony, L'chol Olam, L'chol Ba'i Olam, all and everybody saw that God's presence rested in our midst. The message is very clear and very powerful. For Osuli Mikdash Bishakhanti Bisokham is a charge that each and every one of us can strive to work that our personalized homes should be that mini Baisam Mikdash. The Mokom of Hashra's Hashchina. And just as the Tanchuma says that the purpose of the Beis Hamikdash was a place of Aliyah Regel going to greet the Shechina and a place of Torah, so too our going to our synagogues where we greet the Shechina on a regular basis, take it home 
and make your home a Makom Torah, and thereby we will be maintaining and perpetuating the beautiful mitzvah of Vaasuli Mikdash Bishochanti Bisocham. Shabbat Shalom to all. Shar from Levine, Curry Bone. Rabbi Eli Deitch is with us live via telephone. Rabbi Deitch is here in the United States, and he is a um, he's doing a tour. He's actually at I didn't even know Manhattanville had a Hillel. He's at Manhattanville Hillel College today. Or Manhattanville College Hillel, I should say. Starting at 12 noon, he'll be spending a Shabbat in West Orange, New Jersey. Sunday, he'll be at the General Store on Cedar Lane in Teaneck. Then he travels to Chicago, UNC, California. He's got a whole bunch of stuff going on. Rabbi Ellie Deitch is an acclaimed speaker and author who inspires and motivates Jews of all backgrounds to take a fresh look at life by presenting thought-provoking Torah ideas. In a matter that's inspirational and user-friendly, he lives in the old city of Jerusalem.
Guess he's here to escape the snow. <laughs> and uh, most of his, and spends most of his time teaching, writing, counseling, learning, hosting, and being with his family. He's uh, the author of the number one Amazon bestsellers, The Case for Judaism and Jewish by Choice, as well as numerous other works under his uh, full name of Eliyahu Yaakov. Rabbi Ellie Deitch, welcome to JM in the AM. Shalom, shalom. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. So this was not a strategy to escape the snow, right? Uh, actually, I'm kind of missing the snow there. I mean, it's a big occasion when you get snow enough to build a snowman. My wife sent me a picture of my kids with a snowman. <laughs> Unbelievable. <laughs> no question about that. Um, so uh, you, you're here and you're doing this tour and your goal is to inspire people Today is the first day in the month of Adar, the second day of Rosh Chodesh. We say Mishanichnas Adar Marbim Besimcha. So a lot of what we've been talking about the last day or so has been about happiness and joyousness. Is there a major component of our tradition of Judaism um, that is in fact happiness and joyfulness? Um, I certainly believe so, especially if you think about it. You see, a lot of a lot of people today, especially in the Western world in the United States, joy and depression is unfortunately uh, a big topic, meaning to say that, um, you know, I think the culture around us has it a little bit wrong, where they put in the back of our minds that our level of joy is a dependent. That's dependent on how much stuff I get, on what I receive, um, on what's uh, the things that I have incoming in my life. Um, and while there is a certain necessity to have a certain bottom, you know, certain bottom line minimum, um, I think that if we turn it around, uh, we can see that it has a lot more to do with what I'm doing than what I'm receiving. You know, they put in the back of our minds that if only, like this calculation, you know, if only I had that uh, girl, then I'd be happy. If only I had that guy, then I'd be happy. If only I had that job, if only I had that six-figure income, if only I had those looks, if only I had that figure, if only I had that life, then I'd be happy. But imagine, you know, imagine one day you get one of those things. Imagine you win the lottery, right? So, of course, even the psychologist will tell you that you're going to have a high from that. That's obvious. But even the psychologist will tell you that maximum, maximum, that high will last no longer than six weeks. Right? Uh-huh. Then you come down from that high and you're, same, you're back to the same state you were before, more or less, just maybe with more money. And so we see that. Our level of joy is really has to do not with what we're intaking, but really much more so, I believe, with what we're outputting. And ah. To the extent we go ahead and clarify who we really are, what we're really here for, what's life all about, and make real moves in order to go ahead and follow up on that. So we will access the part, we will go ahead and live out our inner potential into actualization. And I think this gets much more to, uh, to, to a joyous state. You know, I think that we could, in a nutshell, I think we could define joy as the experience of actualizing the reality of who we are. Why does it seem that your neighbors, and again, you live in the old city of Jerusalem, sounds from your voice that you're not originally from the old city of Jerusalem. Why does it seem that your neighbors, your colleagues in that special area of the world, that we know is the old city, uh, take this to heart, that they really get what happiness and joy is all about, while many of us who are pursuing some of the things you describe never get it. Um, well, look, I think that I think it's you know kind of along the lines of what I'm saying. Um, you know, I think people are certainly where I live. Thank God, uh, we're blessed to be uh, focused on you know, and this is all a generalization, of course. 
Um, but definitely we're like more focused on, you know, what are we doing here? What's life all about? And, um, you know, try to, try to follow up on that. And that's not to say that, uh, there aren't certainly, you know, people here in America who are, who are also doing that because, you know, if, even if a person is involved, uh, certainly if a person is involved much more in the working world, um, a person, thank God, is blessed with a lot of money. Okay, so then the question is, do I see that as the ends or do I see that as uh, a great a means, a means right. to do something positive with that? Um, and to the extent, uh, to the extent the person sees it that way, I think that they're going to be able to uh, look in a look see life in a bigger picture and be able to see the means that God has given them, and then hopefully, you know, use it for some positive, uh, some positive cause that benefits others, benefits the Jewish people, benefits the world. Rabbi Ellie Deitch speaks in West Orange this Shabbat, Teaneck this coming Sunday. Your topic in West Orange is our soul and how it affects us. I thought we're supposed to affect our soul and that it doesn't necessarily affect us. Okay, so when we talk, when we when we're thinking about the soul, um, the, we have, what, I, what I'm looking at in that talk, in that particular talk is. Um, about what makes us tick, meaning to say that if we understand, uh, when we understand the concept of what the soul is all about, and you know, I don't want to give it all away here, um, <laughs> we're able to, um, we're able to understand why it is, why we feel what we feel, why we, what, like for example, things like this having to do with joy, you know, what, what makes us tick, what inspires us, like today also I'm speaking in this place called Manhattan, Manhattanville College. Right. Right, and um, which is, by the way, one of the things I try to do is try to get into places that uh, a lot of you know there isn't much uh, Judaism or Jewish content uh, happening. So, right, like you mentioned, Manhattanville College, you didn't, you didn't know there were any, it existed, let alone that there is. Some we we, o- we only notice we only notice in Manhattanville because they play Yeshiva University in basketball. That's it. Oh, okay, there you go. <laughs> so, um, so you know, so what I'm tra- right. So that's one of the things I'm trying to do, but. Um, but what, what I'm trying to get at is getting in, getting to uh, what like what I'm doing over there, for example, today. We're going to get to really what makes us tick. Why are people into sports? You know, sports is an entertainment. You sit back, watch the game. I get that. But the passion that people, some people have behind it. What, where does that come from? You know, that you have such a passion for that, or and why, for example, people like to collect things, build collections, build anywhere between building an empire to building a comic book collection. Like, where does that come from in a person? You know, certainly an animal doesn't have such a collection. Right. You know, maybe a beaver collects sticks, but that's for, that's for a purpose that we can see that's very clear. What is, it, what is driving the person to do these things? If we can understand that correctly, understand where that comes from, and of course, if, when we understand the soul, we're going to be able to understand what that comes, where that comes from. No question about um, that. So this is, so this is where, what we're trying to get at. Amazing. Uh, tell me about the relationship that you formed with Birthright Israel over the years. Yeah, so um, it's actually quite uh, a little bit of a miracle, but um, to keep a long story short, um, basically I'm, I, I make my way into birthright uh, trips, and thank God I have uh, permission from them and certification from them to, to approach the providers. And uh, this is, again, another way that um, I get in, uh, I'm getting, I've been blessed to get in to, to speak with Jews that don't have uh, much other Jewish background, much Jewish exposure really to anything, um, and I give them, I do a little program with them and hopefully have them inspired and get them to really write letters to themselves of what do they want to say now that they're on a high, they see the Israel side of themselves. What do I want to say then to my three months 
from now south. I'm going to go back to America. I'm going to go back to where I came from. And while it's a beautiful high and I see things clearly now, we, you know, we all know the way the nature of things, that you get back to your similar surroundings. And um, unfortunately, that high, uh, you know, kind of passes by. And then, okay, so what do I want to take with this? What messages do I want to take with this, to take for myself? And, um, and then we follow up, and then also we follow up on them, with them, and uh, try to, you know, connect with them and connect them to things that, that are available to them in their areas and connect with Jewish organizations, etc. And also I'm working now on a big project to um, start seminars online uh, in which people will be able to continue the inspiration and hopefully, you know, take that inspiration and make something real out of it in an ongoing basis, learn once a week online, and then, uh, God willing, we'll bring them back to Israel for future trips, and uh, but trips with uh, perhaps stronger uh, content, a certain focus on, uh, on Judaism and Jewish learning. Um, this is what you know. This is what we're after right now. This is what we're doing right now. Finally, we mentioned the books you've written. Um, the, the case for Judaism. I know it's hard to do this in sixty seconds, but could you give us a uh, a description of the goal of the book, what you were trying to accomplish with it, so we can understand what direction you're coming from? Sure. Uh, the case for Judaism is trying to basically do exactly as the title says: state the case for Judaism. State the case for Judaism, meaning you know. And this is really what I guess inspired me to get into all, all of this Jewish outreach activity is uh, when I grew up, um, so I heard a lot about the what's of Judaism and the how's of Judaism, what to do, how to do it. But like, why on earth should I be involved in this? Why on earth should I care? Why should this make a difference in my life? You know, okay, it's very nice you can teach me different ways to make tea on Shabbat, but why, but like really, why should I, why should I keep Shabbos? You know, from a, from a philosophical perspective and also from a spiritual perspective. And so I think a lot of times this is passed over. Um, in Jewish educational system, and um, basically this is what I'm trying to do uh, in this book is, okay, why should I believe that there's a God? Why should I believe God gave the Torah to the Jewish people? Why should I believe that the Torah Shabbat Peh, the oral Torah, is legit and relevant? These are all things that I think, as Jews, we need to have, some, we need to have clarity on this. Yes, of course, we have to accept the Torah and take, and take that with us, but in a world where there's all sorts of options out there and they're all at our finger, fingertips, we should have very solid reasoning and foundation as to why believe and why do what we do. Phenomenal. This is really what this, this is what this book is trying to lay out in a concise and clear uh, fashion. Uh, phenomenal. Rabbi Ellie Deitch is in West Orange this Shabbos. Check him out. Teaneck at the General Store on Cedar Lane starting at 10 o'clock on Sunday. Where do people see your full schedule? Um, uh, you know what? I'm gonna, if it's all right with you, I'll send it over to you and, uh, and you can post it or I'll have it also on my website. Get your Jew on. Get Rabbi Ellie Deitch, have a joyous month of Adar, and thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Friday morning, Rosh Chodesh Adar, Jam the M on this area of Shabbos Parshas Truma, candle lighting at 516, everybody. Soul to Soul with Benny Friedman and Chaim Israel this Sunday night at the Brooklyn School of Music on Clawson Avenue in Crown Heights starting at 7 p.m. Go to JewishTickets.com for that. Naomi Nachman has an amazing edition of Table for Two coming up next. That's right. Naomi Nachman. And you can see it, by the way. You can see it on NahumSiegel.com. If you check it out, you can see the whole show on NahumSiegel.com. Want to wish a mazel tov to Talia Thurm. Rumor has it Talia's a student of Stacy Siegel at some point. And Michael Abramson, they're getting married this coming Sunday. Talia from the Upper East Side and Englewood. Michael from up in Scarsdale. They are Ramaz alumni, and as I said, Talia, a student of the great Stacy Siegel. Wedding this coming Sunday night. Talia Thurm, Michael Abramson, Mazalta from all of us here at JM in the AM. Memory.
My brothers and sisters in Israel, we are with you. It's your favorite America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program. Heard on listeners, sponsored WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope, Rockland County at 91.9 on the FM dial, broadcasting live from the Sonia and Robert Gold Studios in Jersey City, New Jersey, around the world on the web, jmtheam.org. Hey, want to wish Barry and Simon Jacob a Mazel Tov. They are grandparents again. Brand new baby boy born in Israel. Mazal tov to the extended Jacob family from all of us here 
at JM in the AM. Uh, Naomi Nachman, brand new edition of Table for Two comes up next. You can see the whole thing at NachumSiegel.com. Our brand new Saturday night schedule tomorrow night starting at 9 p.m. with Saturday night Siegel. Make sure to join us starting at 9 o'clock tomorrow night. Um, Sunday, it's JM Sunday with Matis at 7. And then, of course, at 7 p.m., it's Elliot Weiselberg and Court Report as the playoff season heats up in the Yeshiva League. Have a fabulous Shabbos, wonderful weekend. Until uh, Monday morning, Nachum Sigal reminding you, remember the past, live the present, and trust the future.